So we watched the new James Wan movie. Yeah. Malignant. What did you think of that? <laughs> it was interesting to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> You're being too kind. <laughs> yeah. I was, I don't know if I was expecting too much from him or I just didn't get it. I guess he was trying to push the envelope a little bit. Yeah. But just not something that I really cared for. I feel like the idea of it is interesting, but I don't think it was like really executed that great. It no, was, yeah. It was dragging on a lot too, in my opinion. Yeah, and some of the character arcs were kind of odd. Yeah. Like they didn't go anywhere. Yeah. The odd CSI woman, whatever yeah. she was, her character was very odd. Her character reminds me a lot of the character, the medical examiner on uh, Prodigal Son. Yeah. And I don't know where that stigma of them acting that way yeah, came I know. from. I, I thought Prodigal Son was a little overboard too yeah. on that character. I mean, I, I like the actress from Gilmore, Gilmore Girls, Girls, right? Yeah. yeah. She's a good actress, but I think her character goes a little over the top. Yeah, it's a bit much. But we don't have to worry about that anymore because, unfortunately, they canceled Prodigal Son. Yeah, makes me sad. Yet Manifest is still going. I don't understand that. <laughs> like, I'm I'm sorry. I don't understand. Because I feel like all of a sudden, just recently, people started having an obsession with that show. Yeah, I don't get that at all. I couldn't get through the first season, so. Yeah. <laughs> but just my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> what do you have tonight? The story I'm talking about tonight is known as the Acid Bath Murders. Ew. Yeah. Doesn't sound fun. Yeah, that turns my stomach. Yeah. <laughs> John George Hay was an English serial killer during the 1940s. He was convicted of six murders, even though he claimed to have killed a total of nine people. To me, it's very interesting. I feel like you see with a lot of serial killers... The convicted number that they have is a lot lower than what they claim. Yeah, you wonder if they're boasting or if they actually killed all those people. Yeah, but yeah, he claimed to have killed nine people. I don't know why you'd want to add to your list, but I guess if it's an ego thing. I'm sure it's an ego thing for a lot of them, but if he only claimed nine, that's pretty low in... Serial killer numbers? Yeah. Yeah. John George Hay was born in Stamford, Lincolnshire, and grew up in the village of Outwood, West Yorkshire. He was confined to living within a 10-foot fence that his father put around their garden to lock out the outside world. Hay would later claim he suffered from recurring religious nightmares in his childhood. After school, he was an apprentice to a firm of motor engineers. After a year, he left that job and took jobs in insurance and advertising. At age 21, he was fired after being suspected of stealing from a cash box. 
The following year, he was named as a co-respondent in the divorce of Evelyn and racing driver Eddie Hall. On July 6, 1934, Hay married Betty Hammer. The marriage struggled shortly after. The same year, Hay was jailed for fraud. Betty gave birth while he was in prison, but she gave the baby up for adoption and left him. On his release, he was jailed again for 15 months for a fraud involving cars bought on higher purchase. When freed, he tried to go straight with a dry cleaning business, but it failed when his business partner was killed in a motorcycle accident. He moved to London and became a chauffeur to William McSwan, a wealthy owner of an amusement park. Hay and McSwan became friends, but Hay still wanted to set himself up in business. He became a deceptive solicitor, earning himself four years in jail for fraud. Hay was released just after the start of the Second World War, then jailed again for theft. While in prison, he came up with what he considered the perfect murder, removing the body by dissolving it with acid. He experimented with mice and found it took only 30 minutes for the body to disappear. Ew. Yeah. I don't know why you're thinking that in jail. I feel like that's a good indicator that you should probably just stay in jail. Yes. <laughs> he was freed from one term in 1943 and became an accountant with an engineering firm. Soon after, he bumped into McSwan in the Goat Pub in Kensington. McSwan introduced Hay to his parents who mentioned that they had invested in property. On September 6, 1944, McSwan disappeared. Hay later admitted hitting him over the head after luring him into a basement. He then put McSwan's body into a 40-gallon drum and tipped concentrated sulfuric acid onto it. Add that to our list of another reason why not to have friends. Yeah, or just be around people at all. Yes. Two days later, he returned to find the body had become sludge, which he poured down a manhole. He told McSwan's parents that their son had fled to Scotland to avoid being called up for military service. Hay then took over McSwan's house, and when his parents became curious as to why their son had not returned, when the war was coming to an end, he murdered them too. On July 2nd, 1945, he lured them to a road and disposed of them. Hay stole William McSwan's pension checks and sold their properties, stealing about 8,000 pounds, and moved into the Onslow Court Hotel in Kensington. By the summer of 1947, Hay was a gambler and running short of money. He found another couple to kill and rob, Dr. Henderson and his wife Rose, whom he met after claiming to show interest in a house they were selling. He rented a small workshop and moved acid and drums there. He was also known to have stayed at the George Hotel Crawley on several occasions. On February 12, 1948, he drove Henderson to Crawley on the pretext of showing him an invention. When they arrived, Hay shot Henderson in the head with a revolver he had earlier stolen from the doctor's house. He then lured Mrs. Henderson to the workshop claiming her husband had fallen ill and shot her as well. 
After disposing of their bodies in an oil drum filled with acid, he forged a letter from them and sold all their possessions for 8,000 pounds, except their dog, which he kept. Well, at least he didn't end up in the acid vat. That's true. Yes. I'm very shocked that he didn't sell the dog, but I'm glad that the dog was still alive. Yes. Better to have a master who's a serial killer than to be dead. That's true, I guess. (laughs) That's one way to look at it. Hayes' next and final victim was Olive Durand Deacon, a 69-year-old widow and fellow resident at the Onslow Court. She mentioned to Hay, by then calling himself an engineer, an idea she had for artificial fingernails. He invited her down to the workshop on February 18th, 1949, and when she got inside, he shot her in the back of the head, took all of her valuables, including a Persian lamb coat, and put her into the acid bath. So his whole thing was just money. Yeah. Finding people that he could steal from. Basically, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Right, yeah. Two days later, Durand Deacon's friend, Constance Lane, reported her missing. Detectives soon discovered Hayes' record of theft and fraud and searched the workshop. Police not only found Hayes' briefcase containing a dry cleaner's receipt for Mrs. Durand Deacon's coat, but also papers referring to the Hendersons and McSwans. Further investigation of the sludge at the workshop by the pathologist Keith Simpson revealed three human gallstones. Jeez. Where does somebody get all of that acid? I have no idea. you think that would raise suspicions. Yeah. Apparently not back then. Yeah. I imagine now it would. I would hope it would. Yeah. Questioned by Inspector Albert Webb, Hay asked him what the chances of anybody being released from a psychiatric hospital would be. The inspector said he could not discuss that sort of thing. So Hay replied, well, if I told you the truth, you would not believe me. It sounds too fantastic to believe. So he was edging for the insanity. Yes. Yeah. Hay then confessed that he had not only killed Duran Deacon, the McSwans, and Hendersons, but also three other people, a young man called Max, a girl from Eastbourne, and a woman from Hammersmith. The three others might have been part of Hayes' attempt to convince the police of insanity. Oh, so he's just possibly tacking on killings to make himself sound crazier than he already was. Yes. Well, make himself sound crazy. Yeah. Because I wonder about the whole money thing. You know, it's a little different than some serial killers that have different motives, psychological motives. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting that his happens just to be all money-based. Yeah. But... Of course, you still have to be pretty sick to do that. No, yeah, 100%. Crazy. Yeah. After arrest, Hay was charged with murder at the nearby courthouse in what is now known as the Old Town Hall. The Attorney General, Sir Hartley Shawcross, led for the prosecution and urged the jury to reject the prisoner's defense of insanity because all the crimes were premeditated. Sir David Maxwell, defending, called many witnesses to attest to Hayes' mental state 
including Dr. Henry Yellowlees, who claimed Hay had paranoid constitution, adding, quote, the absolute callous, cheerful, bland, and almost friendly indifference of the accused to the crimes, which he freely admits having committed, is unique in my experience, end quote. It took only minutes for the jury to find Hay guilty. Mr. Justice Humphreys sentenced him to death. Going back to the, he was not insane because the murders were premeditated. Yes. That doesn't make any sense to me. It seems like a crazy person could premeditate a murder. But I think with the whole money and robbing thing. Yeah, well, I agree with that. Like I said, it seems like he isn't as crazy as some serial killers. Yeah. It was reported that Hay, in the condemned cell at Wandsworth Prison, asked one of his jailers, Jack Morwood, whether it would be possible to have a trial run of his hanging so everything would run smoothly. (laughs) The request was denied. (laughs) Okay. Hay was led to the gallows by Chief Executioner Albert Pierpoint on August 10th, 1949. The case of John George Hay was one of the post-1945 cases which gained much media coverage at the time. The method of disposal gave him his place in criminal history. So, Hay had agreed to model for a death mask being made by Madame Tussaud's waxworks. Oh, jeez. <laughs> He left his clothes to Tassad's with the stipulation that his waxwork was always kept spotless, with trousers neatly creased, shirt cuffs showing, and hair parted. So they actually made a wax model of him? Why? I have no idea. I think that's wrong. Yeah, 100%. It's weird. But he agreed to do it. Weird and sensationalizing him. Yeah, but that happens a lot. Yeah, well, I know, but it, yeah, it shouldn't. Yeah. yeah. On March 25th, 1949, the editor of the Daily Mirror was jailed for three months and the newspaper's publishers fined 10,000 pounds for contempt of court and its reports of early proceedings in the case against Hay. It was said that the reports and photographs described by the Lord Chief Justice as a disgrace to English journalism could have prejudiced Hayes' defense. Before I'm done with my story, I do want to read off the list of Hayes' confirmed victims. So on September 9th, 1944, William Donald McSwan, July 2nd, 1945, Donald and Amy McSwan, February 12th, 1948, Archibald Henderson and Rosalie Henderson, and February 18th, 1949, Olive Durand Deacon. That's sad. Yes. And those are his confirmed, not the ones that he claimed. All right. That is the end of my story. Very sad. Yes. Very disturbing to think about the acid baths. And the sludge. The sludge, yeah, that was disturbing. Yes. So, what is your story for tonight? Well, unfortunately, mine isn't much rosier. Oh. 
I had been working on a story about a haunted house for tonight, but I found some additional reading material that I wanted to read through and I wasn't able to finish on time. So I decided to postpone that story for another episode. Guess that's a teaser. Okay, I'm excited. <laughs> Instead, tonight I thought I would talk about precognitive dreams and visions. Hmm. Many, many episodes ago, I was talking about premonitions and said I would circle back on some precognition stories. Yeah. I have one story tonight and some others that I will discuss in a future episode. Okay. Another teaser. <laughs> I look forward to it, I <laughs> hope. <laughs> yes. Before I get into the dreams and visions, I have to explain the event, which was the 1966 Abervan disaster. So Abervan was a coal mining village in the UK situated in the Taff Valley of Wales. During mining operations, there is waste that is produced, like dust from washing the coal and shale rock from the digging, yeah. among other things. That waste would be carted off and dumped into a pile, what they called a spoil tip. I can't recall what year the mine started in that area, but they were on tip number seven in 1966. My understanding is they originally started the tips in the valley, but when they ran out of room, they started piling them on the hillsides. Hmm. Tip 7 was started in 1958, and by 1966, it was said to be over 110 feet high and contained about 300,000 cubic yards of waste. Oh my gosh. So a big, messy pile. Yeah. The problem with that particular tip is it was deposited on top of a porous sandstone where water springs emerged, mm. so unstable ground. Yeah. The village of Abervan was in the valley just below the tip. Pant Glass Junior High was on the edge of town near the hillside. Uh oh. It had been raining for weeks and was still raining hard on the morning of Friday, October 21, 1966, as the children headed to school. The area is known to get up to 60 inches of rain a year. The children were excited because they would be released early at midday to begin holiday break. At 9.15 a.m., the tip, saturated from rainwater, slipped, and the slurry of mine waste began to avalanche down the hillside. Down at the school, the lights began to flicker and a noise described as being like a jet plane grew louder and louder. The avalanche of slurry destroyed everything in its path as it rushed down the mountain including cottages on the hillside before it slammed into the school, smashing walls and pouring into the building. Oh my gosh. Witnesses said that after those few seconds, everything went quiet. Cyril Vaughn, a teacher at the neighboring senior school, said everything was so quiet as if nature had realized a tremendous mistake had been made and was speechless. 144 people were killed. 116 were children. Oh my gosh. Along with the children were five teachers, 23 residents of the farm cottages on the hillside, and a row of 18 terrace houses next to the school. The victims' ages range from three months to 82. Oh my gosh. This gets a little bit rough here. Jeff Edwards, who was the last child pulled out alive, said he recalled the thunderous noise, and then the next thing he remembered was waking up with his desk pinned against his stomach. Aww. A girl was lying next to him, her head resting on his shoulder, and she was dead. Oh no. 
He said, quote, I could hear crying and screaming. As time went on, they got quieter and quieter as children died. They were buried and running out of air, end quote. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. I can't even, yeah. Jeff waited for 90 minutes, gasping for air, the dead girl's head resting on his shoulder before he was rescued. As an adult, he said the image of her face comes back to him continuously. Another quote from Jeff Edwards. One minute you were young, innocent children of eight years of age who were looking forward to the holidays, and then at 20 past nine, we were totally different people and would never be the same again. Everyone in the community would struggle with the effects of the disaster throughout their lives. Oh my gosh. I have one last quote from Jeff Edwards here. Quote, I couldn't speak about what happened to my parents because of the horrific things I saw. You felt you didn't want to put them through that, end quote. He said he never spoke to his mother about what happened. And that's coming from an eight-year-old? Yeah. Not wanting to put his parents through that? Yeah, and that's sad. That's crazy. It was determined that the National Coal Board, the board that manages all the coal operations in the country, was entirely at fault and grossly negligent. But that is another story in and of itself that I won't get into. So that was a horrible, horrible story before the story that I wanted to discuss. But I didn't feel like I could gloss over what had happened. Yeah. Dr. John Barker was a consultant psychiatrist at the Shelton Hospital in nearby Shrewsbury and immediately went to Aberfan after the tragedy to offer help. While there, he began to hear stories from grieving families about dreams and premonitions of the tragedy. Like the story of one of the victims, 10-year-old Ariel Jones, which Dr. Barker later wrote about. In the days leading up to the disaster, Ariel told her mother that she wasn't afraid to die because she would be with Peter and June, who were two of her classmates that had died young. On October 20th, she said to her mother, Mommy, let me tell you about my dream last night. Her mother answered, Darling, I've no time now. Tell me again later. Ariel replied, No, Mommy, you must listen. I dreamt I went to school and there was no school there. Something black had come down all over it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Barker, a member of Britain's Society for Psychical Research, became curious of whether there was more people who had precognitive dreams or visions about the disaster. He approached Peter Fairley, science correspondent for the London Evening Standard, about reaching out to find anyone who might have had an experience prior to the accident. Fairley published the appeal in the newspaper on 28 October 1966. They received 76 responses in the following two months. Many were too vague to make any real connection to the tragedy, but 60 were deemed worthy of investigation. They reached out to those 60 people asking them to provide contact information for anyone who knew about the details of their dream or vision prior to the tragedy. Oh my God. So they could confirm that it was actually valid. Yeah. 24 of the 60 responded with confirmations. Most of the people who provided their stories had never heard of Abervan, didn't live near it, and had no connection to the town. Carolyn Miller had a vision of the disaster on October 20. She saw an old schoolhouse in a valley, 
saw a miner and then an avalanche of coal coming down the mountain. She saw a terrified boy at the bottom of the mountain and then saw bits of the rescue operation and a vision of a rescue worker with the boy after he was saved. She told the story to women at her church that night and to a neighbor at 8.30 the next morning. She then saw the news coverage on television, seeing the boy and the rescue worker from her vision. Oh my. One question that was brought up during Dr. Barker's research was whether she had a vision of the tragedy or a vision of seeing the television coverage. Yeah. Not sure if that really matters in the debate of whether people can see the future, but it was an interesting perspective. Well, wouldn't it still be the future, whether it was... Well, yeah, actual... that's what I'm saying. I don't think it really matters, but yeah. it was interesting, the perspective of, well, was she having a vision of the event or was she having a vision of seeing the event on TV? Yeah, that makes sense. Kind of a weird perspective. But Another woman, Mary Hennessy, had a dream the night before the accident. She dreamt of seeing children in a school and she herself was in a hallway watching as the tragedy unfolded. Next, she saw hundreds of people running toward the accident. She remembered the horrible looks on people's faces and how some were crying. She was worried that it had something to do with her grandkids and called her son and daughter-in-law the next morning at 8.45 and told them about the dream and her concerns. Another woman, Mrs. Grace Eagleton, stated she had never been to Wales and didn't possess a TV. One week before, she had a horrible, vivid dream of a disaster in a coal mining village. She saw a valley with a big building filled with young children. A mountain of coal and water were rushing down the valley, burying the building. She said the screams were so vivid, she screamed herself. A neighbor confirmed that Mrs. Eagleton shared the dream with her prior to the accident. The one unfortunate aspect of most precognitive dreams and visions is the information isn't usually specific enough to stop the disaster from happening. Yeah. Barker published extracts from the accounts and an analysis in the Journal of the Society of Psychical Research. He may have been planning further analysis, but unfortunately, he himself died two years later at the age of 44. Oh my God, that's young. Yeah. Couldn't find out what he died of. I couldn't find any information on him. Yeah. But that was it. Very depressing evening. Yeah. I can't even imagine having dreams like that. Not that horrible, no. Yeah. I mean, I've I've had pretty horrible dreams, but nothing that ever came true like that. Yeah, I guess that would make it even worse, right? Yeah. Bad dreams usually try to forget. Yeah. But then if something happened... And it's also interesting that there are people that weren't even living in the area that dreamt about it. And there are multiple people. Yeah, that is crazy. You got to wonder what's going on. Yeah, that's sad. I can't even imagine, one, having those dreams and two, actually being in the disaster. Yeah, speechless on that. Yeah, I, I don't know what else to say. On that note, I guess we'll wrap it up. Thank you very much for joining us. Make sure to visit next week for more weird and creepy stories. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 12past3 or email us at podcast at 12past3.com. Good night. Good night.